What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. But before we get into it, Laurel and I just wanted to say a quick word, a quick moment of silence, if you will, for the passing of a legend, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The notorious RBG. Uh, It's been a a long and difficult and emotional time for a lot of us uh, as we navigate the pandemic uh, and especially for us Americans as we uh, as we move toward a historic election. I think we've all been feeling a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear and a lot of terror about what is going on in the world. And it was really a blow uh, to lose uh, Justice Ginsburg. at, at such a, a already tumultuous time. So uh, I just want to kind of take a moment and remember what an incredible woman this was, uh, how she spent so many years crusading for us, fighting for us. Uh, she was an incredible pioneer for gender equality and just a true inspiration to generation after generation. So I want to thank Justice Ginsburg for all that she has done for us, for how long she has fought for us, and make a promise, which is that we will pick up the fight that she has left for us. We will not let her work end with her life. So uh, thank you for everything that you've done, Justice Ginsburg, and we are going to continue fighting for the things that you believed in. On with the show this week. Yeah. Heavy start. We, so we wanted to do an episode. Things have been really heavy with the last few episodes in our discussion on historical fiction. And we wanted to do something that was kind of inspired by our last episodes, but also a movie that was a little lighter in content, a little more family oriented, a little friendlier and uh, more whimsical. So this week, we are very excited to be back into the world of computer-generated animation. We are going to be talking about the Pixar movie set in a fictional medieval Scotland, Brave. Just a few episodes after a movie set in a fictional medieval Scotland, Brave Heart, uh, we're coming to a movie with a similar title and a similar setting, but a completely different story and one that is going to lead us to completely different conversations. I'm very, very excited to talk about this one. And as we we you know began with our meditations on uh, the incredible Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it feels appropriate that we get to talk about powerful women taking charge of their own destiny this week. Absolutely. I am really stoked to talk brave. I don't know about you. I saw this one in the theater. It came out before we were together and I haven't seen it since until prepping for this week's podcast. So I'm really, really excited. I think this movie is incredibly special. I think it is entirely unique, not only for Pixar, it's unique for the fairy tale genre. It has something truly magical about it. And correct me if I'm wrong, this movie didn't make a huge splash when it came out, did it? I don't think it was 
like a smash. It's no like Toy Story, you know? It did well. And Pixar movies always do well uh, critically and uh, financially. It definitely performed well at the box office and it won awards that you would expect Pixar to win, like best animated feature. Um, but I think in the canon of Pixar, this one has been a little bit underrated and has gone a little bit forgotten. Uh, I, I think one of the things that was really exciting to me when we announced that we were going to do this episode this week was that we got quite a bit of really positive response from our fans and our listeners on social media, some people who were saying this is one of their favorites or their favorite Pixar movie. Uh, and so I was happy to hear that because when you ask people, you know, rate your top five Pixar movies, you don't always hear this one come up. But when you meet someone who loves Brave, they fiercely, fiercely love Brave. And I, I, there's there's no reason not to, in my opinion. You know, going back and watching this again, like you, it was only my second time watching it. Um, both times, it was incredibly effective for me and more effective at this point in my life for various reasons, one of those being that I am about to become a mother. So I'm about to go from identifying primarily with the Merida energy to primarily identifying with the Eleanor energy. But there is just something so special about, I think, the beauty of the animation, the mystery and the magic of the setting, the inspirations of the characters, and just the incredible whimsy of this very unexpected story. Uh, you expect this to be about young Merida stepping out on her own, maybe fighting, maybe being a sort of Mulan-esque adventure where she, you know, casts off the, the ladylike adventure and decides to go on her own uh, mission of fighting and being her, her own person. But it's a very, very different story than you're expecting. And I think a very truly gripping one. Yeah, I think it is. I totally agree with that. When I went to see Brave, I expected it to be about a young woman refusing to get married and instead going out there and trying to compete with the boys. Yeah, yeah. I did not expect the journey that we see, and I thought it was delightful when I first saw it, and I think it ages incredibly well. I think it's just as delightful, and I think there's a lot of cool things we here at The Midnight Myth can talk about and share with you, dear Midnight Myth listeners. But before we get too heavy into it, Laurel... Do your thing. Yeah, so uh, we here at The Midnight Myth would love to hear from you. Uh, so if you have thoughts, if you have episode suggestions, if you ever just want to drop a line and say hi, uh, we would love that. We're on social media at The Midnight Myth. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're over on the web at MidnightMyth.com. Uh, once you're on that website, you can find links to uh, things like our merch store if you wanted to stock up on some Midnight Myth merch. And you'll also find a link to our Patreon page, which is where you can support us for a small monthly donation in exchange for perks like discounts on merch or bonus episodes and so on and so forth. So please consider supporting us there if you have a little bit of change left at the end of the month and you want to throw that our way. The very best thing you can do for the podcast, though, is 100% free, and that is to go to your favorite podcast player, especially Apple Podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. Uh, if you if you love what you're hearing, drop us five stars, write a couple of words about it. It would make our day, and it also helps us stay on the charts and helps other people find us and find out whether we'd be you know something that they're interested in listening to. So that's all I got for you today. All right, thank you for that. Uh, shall we do our briefest of brief movie recaps? Yeah, sure. So Brave features our heroine, the young Merida. It starts with her as a little child on a holiday with her father in a fictional medieval Scotland and uh, her mother. She chases these things called will-o'-the-wisps into the forest and a bear comes and her father has a fight with the bear and the bear chops off and eats his leg a battle that would become legend. The movie then flashes forward to teenage Merida on the cusp of being eligible to marry. All of the uh, three other clans come forward and they present, the clan leaders present their firstborn son to compete in the games. The winner of the game will end up marrying the princess Merida. 
However, Merida is not a traditional princess, much to her mother's chagrin. She would rather ride horses and shoot arrows than wear dresses and be ladylike and be, just go married off as a princess. Merida ends up uh, offending everyone when, in the archery contest, she competes for her own hand in marriage and shows up the three men that are her eligible suitors. This almost brings the clans to all-out civil war, and Merida, finding some will-o'-the-wisps, ends up walking through the forest until she discovers a woodcarver whose home is covered in bears. Turns out this woodcarver is a witch, and Merida says she will buy all of the bears if the witch will make a potion that will change her fate. The way that Merida sees to change her fate is a potion that will change her mother. The potion is made into a tiny, beautiful cake, and Merida gives her mother a slice of this cake, which turns her mother into a bear. Merida and now her bear mother need to escape the castle, and they need to find the witch to find a way to undo the spell, Merida realizing this was not what she wanted. She simply just wanted to not marry. When they get there, they find that the witch is gone, but the witch does leave a message saying the only way to undo the spell is to mend the ties that were broken. Merida takes this to mend the family tapestry that earlier in the film with a sword she sliced in half, and they sneak back into the castle with the idea of mending the um, tapestry. A whole bunch of other hijinks. At the end of the day, the bear that bit the father's leg comes back with all of the clans ready to kill Merida's mom in bear form. God, I'm saying the word bear a lot. <laughs> in which that monstrous bear comes back, who turns out to be a victim of another potion by the same witch, was a prince who asked to have the strength of ten men so he could defeat his brothers in battle. Merida's mother, as a bear, defeats this other prince who is a bear, and then the tapestry is wrapped over the mother as she turns back into a human being. And then they decide that now young people can choose whom they wish to marry. They no longer have to follow these medieval rules. Wonderful recap. Thank you so much for that. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, I don't think any of us went into this movie thinking that it was going to be about a woman transforming into a bear and her daughter having to transform her back. It was so unexpected. Um, and yet it's such a potent metaphor for so many of the structures within the film's society. It is such an emotional journey for these two characters to go on together. And it is such a significant uh, upending I think, of the tradition of fairy tales that Brave is born from. So I think we'll get into a lot of those reasons in our discussion. But uh, I just wanted to reiterate how unexpected I thought the turns of this movie were and yet just how incredibly beautiful and moving the story is. Yet there's something very comforting and familiar about Brave while also at the same hand tells a story that is very unique and unexpected. And it plays that balance really well. And I think it seems like a movie we've seen before when you first see it. Here's Meredith. She's young. She's headstrong. She doesn't want to just follow her mother's footsteps and just be a good princess and then be a good queen. She wants to like buck tradition and she wants to fight. She wants to go out there as an archer and ride horses and she wants to be in nature she gets along really great with her father. And you're like, yeah, I get this movie. Then all of a sudden, a magic spell goes wrong. And it's a mother and her daughter, the mother in bear form. And they go on an adventure together. It's just so charming. And it's so unexpected. And it balances familiar motif, fairy tale-esque setting, whimsical feel with a really good character-driven narrative. If the crux of the problem, as illustrated in the movie, and I think one of the first scenes that really kind of thematically pins down what this movie is about, is the scene where the mother and the daughter are talking not to each other, but it's cut as if they were. And you see that the problem with these two very amazing characters is that they're unable to communicate with each other. And how does the movie address that problem? They literally take one of the character's powers of speech away. They take everything that that character's known for being pretty, being um, put together, 
being a strong leader, being ladylike, following the rules. And they make that woman into a bear. And these characters have to figure out a way to communicate in a way that's literally impossible for them to do it. And this is how they start to rebuild their bond as mother and daughter. And I think that is truly a unique way to put these two main characters who are in starch contrast, but find a way to bridge the gap and build them back together. They have to learn how to communicate to solve this, this problem of the kingdom being ripped apart, the mother having eaten this cake and is now a bear and they have no skills. They have no actual tangible ability to really communicate because one is now a bear. Yeah. Well, and mothers and daughters are an interesting relationship that I think we have seen time and again in film and especially time and again in fairy tale, whether that is on screen or being told to you by the hearth by your grandmother. It is a very significant relationship in the fairy tale genre. And yet the portrayal of it in Brave, I think, is so subversive for numerous reasons, because the traditional mother daughter relationship in a fairy tale is either that the mother is entirely absent or it's entirely antagonistic. The mother is portrayed as an ogre, a cannibal, a witch, uh, or most often a stepmother or mother-in-law who has these qualities. Uh, And sometimes you'll see that with a biological mother as well, uh, as in the earliest versions of Snow White. You've got this weird antagonism that is always portrayed between mothers and daughters uh, that's often in the form of some some sort of sexual jealousy or some competition or rivalry uh, for power within the household. Brave is presenting this to you in a totally different way in fairy tale format and saying, yes, there is conflict here. Yes, there is opposition here. But at the end of the day, Eleanor and Merida are co-protagonists. They are both on a journey. They both have a deficiency at the beginning, a communication deficiency that needs to be healed. And they go on the journey together to heal that. Uh, And I think something that makes Brave in my estimation, a genuinely feminist Pixar movie and a genuinely feminist fairy tale is that neither of these women is is portrayed as a villain. Neither of these women uh, is told that they have to change completely in order to be accepted. They are challenged to grow together and to learn how to accommodate each other uh, in their relationship. And I think that is a really pardon me, brave way to present a mother-daughter relationship on screen, especially in a fairy tale. Yeah, there's no true antagonist in this movie. There's no one that, you know, Merida... Merida is fighting the patriarchal system that says she has to be married to a prince um, at this time in her life, and the only way that can be chosen is it must be the firstborn son of an allied clan and they have to compete in these arbitrary war games in order to win her hand, you know? So she's fighting against that system, but, and she's fighting with her mother because they have a tough relationship at the beginning of the movie, but it's bringing them together to solve a communal problem rather than defeating an antagonist that drives the plot of this movie. Once Merida gets that initiation into the magical world and brings home the bear changing cake potion. Yeah, well, I, I think you've you've made a really important distinction here that we may not have a, a, a clear villain in the form of a character. If anyone, we have more do the demon bear who even has a slight redemption at the end when we realize he's the prince uh, who's been trapped in the form of a bear and is released by Merida and Eleanor fighting together. Uh, but the true villain of the piece, the true antagonist of the piece is the patriarchy. Uh, And I love saying that because the patriarchy is the villain of a lot of our lives, I tend to think. But let's think about this in terms of why is Eleanor transformed into a bear? What does that communicate to us within the film? And how does that relate to uh, this overarching villain? What does it do to turn Eleanor into a bear. Like you said, it literally silences her. It removes her voice. Uh, It externalizes Merida's perception of her as an oppressive force. We have her previously calling her mother a beast, uh, and then she literally becomes beastly. 
It dehumanizes her. It threatens to alienate her from her humanity and also her femininity. The great um, threat over all of this is that she will lose herself and become a bear on the inside forever, which we can see when her eyes sort of change color. Um, but it also interestingly evokes uh, another fairy tale tradition in the Beauty and the Beast vein. Uh, so beastliness and transformation into beasts in fairy tales has previously been associated with gender violence and rape within marriage. So there are a lot of people who will read Beauty and the Beast and say, uh, you know, the, the beastly husband is this externalized threat of what women were facing, what young women were facing when they went into marriages unprepared. So Eleanor's transformation is kind of a representation of Merida's, Merida's fear of losing her autonomy in marriage and the sort of violence and fear that awaits there. Yeah, you've got a Whoa. face. You've got a bit of a face. <laughs> I just, I think that's yeah. a very interesting read. I'm just going to like try to reconnect those points to make sure I got it because that just blew me away a little bit. So, for example, Beauty and the Beast can be read as a metaphor of sexualized violence within the uh, structure of marriage, the beastly husband who rapes the wife who is not ready or knowing or prepared for what marriage means in a sexual way. And that in this movie, the um, Eleanor becoming a bear also symbolizes that same structures of violence within the marriage unit itself. Do I understand that? Yeah, I think it's, I think that's an underlying um, symbol that, that it, it evokes for us, but also it's, it's Merida's fear sort of coming to the outside. And the other bear in this movie is a, an oppressive masculine force is a man who wanted to be as strong as 10 men and who even defeated Merida's father, and he has a revenge plot against. So bears have been associated in their clan, in their world, with a terribly masculine threat. So to turn Eleanor into that is an interesting challenge, I think, to the association of bears with the Dunbrock clan. I guess we're really getting to the crux of why bears. Yeah. Why yeah. is it that they're, why is she turned into a bear? Why are bears in this? Why did the writers of this movie decide bears? And I think that's an interesting take on a, I think a more literal, less psychoanalytic, because I think that's a very psychoanalytical approach, which I commend you for. Usually I do the psychoanalytical <laughs> approaches, but I think that's amazing. I think on the non-psychoanalytical, another reason for a bear is it don't, you don't have to study bears uh, with any level of sophistication to know the most dangerous bear is the mother bear yes, defending yeah. her cubs. That That is when bears get really dangerous. If you ever do any hiking and the, you encounter a bear, if it's a mother bear, you are going to, you're probably going to get ripped apart because if it's a mother bear who's threatened for her cubs, she'll attack. All other bears will typically flee from humans. Obviously there's a lot of bears in the world and I'm not a bear expert, but I do like to camp and hike in particular in Pennsylvania. And you have to have some knowledge of bears when you're sharing the woods with them. And if it's a mother bear and you come across and she has her cubs, you just need to very calmly, very slowly and very non-aggressively walk backwards and walk away and let the mother, if the mother thinks you're a threat whatsoever to the cubs, the mother bear is going to attack. And this is true of, I believe, most bear species. So I think turning the mother into a bear is also a way to say there is a fierce love there. There is an animal-like love there. And it is the mother defending Merida that ultimately defeats the other bear at the climax of the movie. It is the love of a mother for a daughter that says, nope, you're not going to eat my daughter alive. I'm going to defend her. When Eleanor as a bear is being tied down by the four clans, it's still not enough to tie down her mother when she sees her daughter in danger from a bear. Then she breaks those bonds and rips those ties and goes right into, you are not coming after my daughter. And I think on the non-psychoanalytical, I think the bear also represents a fierce maternal love 
Yes, I think you are spot on here. And I think that is what the film is trying to portray by giving us these two very different bear energies and watching the relationship of the clan uh, change to that energy. Because, so if we look at all the things that happened to Eleanor as a result of being transformed into a bear, and then we look at what patriarchy has been doing to her this entire time, uh, there's an interesting freedom and liberation that comes from her transformation. Because patriarchy has made her play bad cop when her husband gets to play good cop and be the preferred parent uh, and patriarchy has made her uphold these outdated norms of marriage that uh, that are oppressing her daughter and that presumably oppressed her as well. And she has benefited uh, marginally from playing by the rules of the patriarchy, but she has put herself in a position of needing to be uh, needing to be the upholder of a system that ultimately keeps her down and keeps her in restrictive clothing, uh, keeps her having to be the uh, having to be the voice of reason all of the time. It has kept her in a box and it will keep Merida in a box. Once she transforms into a bear, she can break out of that restrictive clothing just like Merida does on the archery field. She could just rip through that and say, these things don't matter. These things these trappings don't matter quite so much as the fierce loyalty, fierce love, fierce bravery that I feel in the bear energy. So I think it gets this really interesting complexity of the symbol and says, yes, it has these masculine, violent associations on one end, but it also has these fierce maternal uh, associations on the other. And we can embrace uh, parts of ourselves that are feminine that are ladylike that are uh that are human and then we can embrace parts of ourselves that are bear-like and those can be part of the same energy totally and i also get the sense in particular when all of the clans come and they present their suitors and it just turns into a gigantic brawl right which is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie when eleanor stands up and starts making her way through the brawl Everybody in the middle of the fight stops and just like, and they bow and they're like, oh boy, the queen got up. And you get the sense that Eleanor's really running this kingdom. And Eleanor is really the brains behind everything. And that the reason her husband is the king is for his, his prowess in battle. And what he likes to do is eat and fight and, you know, just be. And you associate that with a bear in many ways. His enemy is a bear. He battled a bear with his bare hands and lost his leg. And that still doesn't keep him down because he's still moving around with one leg. But all it takes is Eleanor to stand up and a whole room of unruly Scots stop and bow and beg and apologize. And then she grabs the leaders of the clan by their ears and drags them to the front of the, uh, of the um, assembly and stops that fighting. Is that not bear-like to a certain way, in a certain degree? Is she not the real bear in that? Like, yeah, you might be able to beat each other to a pulp. You might be able to twist each other's nipples, pull each other's eyes Throw out. Throw a sheep across the room. And then suddenly the queen gets up and everyone's like, uh-oh, mom's here. Yeah, yeah. No, that that, that maternal energy that also makes her, uh, like you said, kind of the brains of the operation, but also the enforcer. It's it's an interesting position that she finds herself in because she really is the um, she really is the head of the kingdom, and she really is the one making the political machinations. She's the one arranging the actual games and kind of telling her husband, "Okay, now is the time that we have to do this thing. We have to uphold this tradition." So, on a certain level, she's empowered within the kingdom, but she is also doing so in service of an outdated system. I mean, it's the Middle Ages, so they wouldn't have actually thought it was outdated, but we as modern progressive viewers see this as outdated and Merida sees it as outdated. So she needs this catalyst and this adventure that she goes on with Merida in order to kind of break out again uh, of that box and try to see things in a different way. Another interesting thing that I think exists in this movie is that 
though it feels very much thematically, I'm sorry, aesthetically like a fairy tale, it's set in medieval Scotland. There are these wonderful will-o'-the-wisps. There's a witch who brews a potion. People can transform into animals and you have to do something to undo the evil magic. All of these feel like, you know, well-tried-and-true fairy tale mythic-style tropes. There is something philosophically about this movie that's very modern and very non-fairy uh, tale-esque. And, and that is what it it, definitive, it definitively wow, says about fate and free will. And it's an argument that has existed in philosophical disciplines as old as philosophy itself. Are we free independent actors or are our lives predetermined by some external force, whether that force would be fate, the gods, God, etc.? Most fairy tales fall on the, and most myths too, fall on the it's all kind of preordained level. There are these uh, huge cosmic forces, whether they're gods or whether they're witches or whether they're the actual fates where we get the word fate from, who are predetermining our path. Our path is not our own. Consider Oedipus, who tries to avoid a prophecy and makes the prophecy happen. Consider um, Hercules who, or Heracles, who's driven mad by Hera and kills his own family and must atone. He had no choice. There's no freedom in that. And in even some of the other, you know, the grim fairy tales that we see in the Disney canon, whether that's Snow White or whether that's Sleeping Beauty, these characters are usually called to a destiny that they were born into, that they didn't themselves choose, and they have very little individual agency in the story itself. The story drives them through it rather than them driving through it. Absolutely. The, the, the women protagonists of those stories in particular, the princesses, the Cinderella's, the Snow Whites, and so on, uh, usually are uh, quote-unquote heroic for their patience and passivity. So they are along for the ride. And the real heroes of the story are the preordained, uh, you know, dragon-slaying princes and kings. So they are already setting out on a grand destiny that's been laid out for them. So even though these men and women may rise above their circumstances, there's uh, usually very little involvement of free will. Yeah, which is to say that there's a philosophical statement being made implicit in many ancient myths and you know medieval fairy tales that the individual is not free to choose. There are external forces that have made the choice for you. And all you can do is go on this journey that is laid out in front of you. And this is the idea that you are not free. In fact, science, modern science, has a rather deterministic outlook on human behavior, saying that it is the fundamental makeup of biological processes and neurochemicals, external stimuli, genetics, all of these things determine our behavior and maybe we don't have control. All we are is a series of molecules interacting within the, an, an environment and reacting to stimuli. And even in that, maybe we aren't actually free to choose. And what we see in this movie is the character Merida proudly proclaiming that A, she's going to change her fate. And that's at the first level. My fate is... As a princess, I didn't choose to be a princess. I was born a princess. My fate as a princess is to marry a prince. I need to change my fate. That is her first primary motivation. That's what drives her to find the witch. That's what feeds, what drives her to feed the the actual, you know, potion cake to her mother, which transforms her into a bear. At the end of the movie, she proudly proclaims there is no fate. You can actually change things for yourself. Yeah, our fate is within us. You are a free, independent actor who can assert their individual will upon the world and can change themselves and by doing so can change others around them. This idea of free will and independent actors, the way it's articulated through Merida, is very much in keeping with enlightenment, self-determinative liberalism. It's very much about the purpose of society is to have free individuals 
And society should unlock the power of that individual rather than oppress it with systems that are designed to enrich the powerful or perpetuate, um, you know, traditions that are such as the patriarchy, such as medieval marriage. And it's very much her saying, I'm going to be a self-determinative liberal in an enlightenment, in a medieval, I'm sorry, in a Western European enlightenment sense in this medieval structure. And I'm going to actually, my will is so strong that I'm going to be able to change this structure forever and succeeds in doing so in which she says, I no longer need to change my fate because I am not bound by fate. Yeah, and and that's the goal, right? The goal is not, I need to change my fate so that I can never get married, so that I can grow up and be uh, an independent ruling queen who rides into battle. It's not, I need to change my fate so that I can run away and become uh, completely free of royalty and become my own independent person. Or I need to change my fate so I can become a witch in the woods. There's no secondary goal here because the goal is just that simple and and it's not a simple proposition but it is a simple idea i want to know i merida want to know that i am in control of my own destiny i want to know that i have some power over where my life goes because i'm young i mean merida's a child and she recognizes that she has things that she wants to do she wants to climb mountains and drink from these legendary waterfalls. She wants to uh, go out one day and, you know, do shooting practice, or she wants to follow the will of the wisps and meet a witch. Like she wants the freedom to determine what she is going to do as she continues to grow up. And I think there's a really uh, a beautiful articulation of this in uh, the scene in which Merida and Eleanor are trying to sneak back into the castle. Eleanor is in bear form and she is hiding out among the taxidermied bears within the Great Hall as all of the men are fighting. And Merida plays a kind of game of charades with her mother, um, trying to explain what her mom is, is trying to communicate through gesture to the hall, being like, the queen and I have come to a decision. And the decision is that Merida will break tradition and that she proposes that the young people in the kingdom... Uh, and the young people of the clans can choose who they marry. And this was the most important part for me, the most pivotal part. Find love in their own time. Because Merida's not saying, I never want to get married. Merida's not saying, I will never change my mind on this. Merida just wants to know that she has time. And for me, that was really moving. The idea that like a coming of age story doesn't have to end with you suddenly knowing exactly who you are and exactly what you want to do with your life, with the rest of your life. A coming of age story can end with you knowing that you still have time. And what better gift can we give our young people than time to figure it out? Time to mess up, time to be free, time to be totally crazy, uh, and time to experiment and time to figure out who they are and who they want to be. It's something that I'm thinking about, especially right now uh, during COVID times. Uh, I work at a university and we've just gone remote for the fall term. And something that I think about a lot is the loss of time that a lot of our students are feeling, a lot of young people are feeling right now. The loss of these very important informative years when you should be out partying, like you should be out socializing and having a great time with your friends and being crazy and messing up, but we're not able to afford young people that time right now. So that was just a very effective moment for me. I also find that scene where Merida and Eleanor come back to the castle. One thing that I'd like to point out before, you know, Eleanor starts doing bear charades and instructs Eleanor to kind of Yo, hey, I see what you're saying. You shouldn't have to marry the way I got. I had to marry. You should be able to choose who you want to marry. Um, Merida's about to say, I've been selfish. It's time for me to marry. She's about to sit there and say, you know what? Once she realizes the stakes of what she's done by refusing and embarrassing the suitors, and she sees that it has almost led to all-out Scottish civil war, she realizes that her own selfish desires are less important 
than the overall greater good. And so she's about to say, all right, I agree. I'm going to get married. I'm going to pick one of these three young men as my husband. And it is Eleanor who's just like, wait, no, we've gone too far. We've learned too much about each other. I finally see what you need, Merida, and I am going to help you get that, which is time, which is the ability to be young and to figure it out on your own. You know, it's important to note that throughout most of human history, in particular in Western civilization, marriage was never about the couple being married. It was always a typically, this is true in ancient Greece for the most part, it's true in ancient Rome, it's true throughout most of medieval Europe, that um, it's about two patriarchs of a family deciding what is the most advantageous match for their mutual family interests and solidifying that match through marriage. So it is very much like what we see parodied in Game of Thrones and in Brave. You know that, hey, there's clans, we need to keep them united, and the way we're going to do that is we're going to marry our young to each other. And this is how it was for a long, long time. And what Brave is reflecting on is that system itself is fundamentally oppressive on its very nature. And what do we see once, you know, Merida suggests that we shouldn't be doing these silly traditions anymore? The, the suitors all chime in and they're like, well, we didn't want to do this either. Yeah, because, oh, guess what? Women aren't the only ones who are oppressed by the patriarchy. It is just as, uh, as antagonistic toward men. Uh, it's antagonistic toward people of all genders. Because if one person is unequal, then we are all unequal. Uh, it, it harkens back to something else that is referenced in that scene, in that charade scene in the Great Hall. Uh, it, it harkens back to the legend of the kingdom being split up uh, that Eleanor tells Merida earlier in the movie, where you have a king who is dividing his kingdom between his four sons equally. And if you have it divided equally then you have four strong pillars on which to build uh, a healthy system of kingdoms that will work together and support each other. But once one of those, those pillars decides that they want to strike out on their own and that they want to conquer the others, the whole thing crumbles. So in order to overcome a system of patriarchy, in order to overcome a system that denigrates one type of person over another or elevates one type of person over another, we have to all agree to create a level playing field. And that's something that Merida and Eleanor start to argue for and that we see illustrated in the young men because they say, yeah, we didn't want to participate in this either. We're just doing this because this is how it's always been done. But Merida's arguing for us to continue supporting each other, continue fighting for each other, while also allowing our young people to make choices because that will lead to the continued health of these alliances and these partnerships. Uh, something that is said twice in the movie, which I think is almost a thesis statement for the Midnight Myth podcast, is legends are lessons. They ring with truths. And that's what happens when you look back at that story of the divided kingdom. That's what happens when you look at Brave. This may not be a true story. This may not have ever happened in any semblance of this. It contains magic. It contains progressive modern ideals within a very anachronistic medieval setting that has trappings of 9th, 10th, 5th, 6th, 14th, and 15th centuries. But it rings with truths. And there's a reason that we watch this today. There's a reason that we get something out of it. Uh, and that's because through this legend, through this legendary setting, we're able to recognize we deserve choice. We deserve to be able to break out of our restrictions. We deserve to break out of systems like patriarchy. Or fate. Or fate. You know, can, would you permit me a little bit of a historical side tangent about the legend of the kingdom and the king who gave equal parts of the kingdom to the four sons. Of and course. I, I want to talk about that because I thought that was fantastic. And I do love the meditation that legends ring with truths throughout the ages, even if they're not literally true, even if there's no fundamental veracity to the events 
they speak to a moral or ethical or um, philosophical truth. I think that's fantastic. You know, in medieval Europe, the emergence in the Dark Ages of the structures that became medieval Europe started from the Carolingian Empire. Um, there was a really fantastic Frank, French warrior named Charlemagne. We named one of our cats after him who conquered out a huge slice of Western and Central Europe for himself and was crowned the first Holy Roman Emperor. And in this, really, the medieval Europe was born. Well, the Carolingian Empire was a short-lived one because what did Charlemagne do? He divided his kingdom equally amongst his sons. And instantly, the sons started fighting each other. But these became demarcations that would eventually become things like medieval Germany and medieval um, France, for example. These nations didn't exist then, but where these sons settled and the territories that they ended up carving up eventually became these modern nations we have now. And obviously I'm being very, very quick with thousands of, of years of history. So there's a lot that happens in between the Carolingian and modern day France and of Germany. Of course, yeah. But the point being, this was a practice of the transfer of power from one generation to another where a powerful king or lord would divide up their lands equally amongst their sons. Women could not inherit property at all. And this was hugely problematic for medieval Europe and led to infighting amongst all of the descendants, in particular kings, their sons would get a piece for them, a piece for another one, and it didn't take them long to be like, you know what, I think I actually deserve all of this, and then they'd go to war with each other. It took time for power to become centralized in monarchies that would pass from one monarch to the next monarch, and the other family members were just not going to inherit the kingdoms. And that was in response to the problem of these constant civil wars because of the way that power transferred from one generation to another. And what we see in this legend is an actual like accurate representation of some of the problems that medieval monarchies had in particular in the um, Holy Roman empire in the Carolingian empire that echoed out until it came from one king to the next king from one Lord to the next Lord this does also present other problems, especially if your royal family is rather large and you have lots of children that aren't going to inherit something. This could often lead to dynastic feuds. This could lead to, you know, um, usurpers. It could also be a factor in leading to things like crusades because you have a lot of wealthy knights who aren't going to inherit property, who are trained warriors, and wouldn't it be great if you pointed them all to the Middle East instead of having them fight each other here in Europe. Because these men need something to do, and they also are looking for some way to distinguish themselves or raise their stature since they're not going to inherit anything through primogeniture. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you're bringing this up because it's also uh, a sort of legendary motif that we'll see in the British Isles, uh, like with the folktales and the mythologies that inspired Shakespeare's King Lear, which is about an aging king dividing his kingdom between three daughters and their husbands. So uh, definitely something that is meditated on in a lot of um, folklore of Europe and the history of Europe and the British Isles. Um, but it's presented with quite a bit of nuance in Brave, where it says it's not necessarily a bad thing to uh, divide something equally. It's not necessarily a bad thing to provide an equitable uh, stake in a kingdom to different groups of people, uh, but you have to watch out for uh, people who think their interests trump others. So it is arguing for, at least Merida and Eleanor are arguing for, all of us to be in it together. Like we can equitably uh, distribute our resources and our wealth, but we all really have to be on the same side and deeply, deeply committed to supporting and, uh, and maintaining our alliances with one another. And not using the lives and bodies of our young as the bargaining chip to cement those alliances. Yeah. What Merida says 
at the end is that, you know, our bond is bigger than a marriage. We've actually like formed a country. We banded together. We have fought and bled together. We don't need this arbitrary marriage ritual to bond us because our bonds are already there. The marriage is not going to enhance or change the fact that we're in this together. We are one country, medieval Scotland. And I think that's really cool. I agree. I absolutely agree. Thank you for, uh, you know, going on that little bend into medieval history. How about uh, another quick bend? Would you follow me into the woods for a little bit? Because I think I see a ghostly light, a will of the wisp, if you will, guiding us toward a little bit of folklore. Oh boy, are we are we in the middle of a transition? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's, We're just let's do it on the segues. So yeah, obviously, uh, Brave presents a, a will of the wisp, which is a real piece of uh, world folklore, and I thought it was an interesting twist that they had on this. Uh, folklore that persists in a lot of different cultures, uh, and they present it in a very new and different way. Uh, in Brave, we are told that Will of the Wisps will lead you to your fate, which is pretty uh, unique as far as a presentation of wisps. We get the name Will of the Wisp from English folklore. Uh, a wisp is a kind of lantern, so it's a similar name to Jack O'Lantern, Will of the Wisp, Jack of the Lantern. You get variations uh, on on this sort of different piece of folklore, you get different names in various different cultures across the world. But essentially what we're talking about are these ghostly uh, lights or these glowing orbs that might appear in the forest uh, or on marshlands, usually with either an ambivalent or a malevolent goal, depending on what you're reading or what story you're hearing. There are stories of uh, a character, a will, or a jack who haunts forests or marshes as a penance for some sort of misdeed. He's a ghost or he's sort of a shade who has done this deal with the devil and is uh, thus captured on these uh, you know, lonely marshlands. And he uses this light or this lantern to lead travelers astray uh, rather than leading them necessarily to their fate. They also might be associated with fairies or tricksters or ghosts of the deceased uh, in some versions or some variations. Now, these are real phenomena. There's a reason that people tell these stories, because people do see ghostly sort of glowing lights and orbs in these locations, but it's mostly been attributed to things like bioluminescence or other natural phenomena. You might even attribute it to fireflies or lightning bugs. But usually in literature, it's symbolic of some sort of uh, distraction or an unreachable goal or hope, something that you can never actually attain, but you'll follow until you get lost in the woods. So for Brave to take a very different stance on it and to present them in a benevolent light, I think is really fascinating. And I'm curious as to uh, what it achieves within the story because our relationship to fate is so important. Merida's relationship to fate is so important. It's seen as like a good thing to follow the will of the wisps to your fate. They'll lead you to that thing that you want. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious about why such a different presentation. Well, they lead her to the witch, right? Yeah. And the witch gives her the, the tools to change her fate to a certain degree because her fate does change, but it's not in what she wanted and it's not in how she imagined it. So yes, at the end, Merida's fate has been changed. So to a certain extent, the Wisps have lived up to the legend within the narrative. To another extent, I really read them as her initiation into the world of magic because she sees them at a very young age, but then she doesn't see them again to when she's right at the verge of adulthood. So she's at a point where she's transitioning from youth to adulthood she is fighting that transition because she doesn't want to go through the initiation of marriage, which would be her initiation to adulthood in a medieval sense. And then she has the wisps that initiate her into the medieval or into the magical part of me. Once she is initiated and properly addressed into the magical, she has to return back. Right. But without the aid of the wisps. She goes back to the witches and she finds it on her own the second time. Yeah. And that is very significant. It tells us, A, she didn't really need the wisps to get there. And B, 
the wisps didn't take her to a place that's so magical that she can't get back to it. So to me, this supernatural aid, this sort of uh, initiation, this reverse marriage, if you will, is the initiation into the magical, which then is also her initiation into fighting the structures of marriage and fighting the desire to grow up and being able to stay a little more like a child for at least this this period of time. It's also, I think, very early on uh, in the first sequence of the movie, it is established that uh, Merida and Eleanor share uh, a belief or some sort of inclination or instinct toward the magical world that Fergus, uh, the father, does not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Merida comes out of the woods and says, I saw a wisp, I saw a wisp. And she and her mother share this uh, connection over this. And her mother says... Well, the wisps will lead you to your fate. They get to bond over the fact that they both share uh, a belief in magic. And Fergus kind of shakes it off and is like, that's not really a thing. And he doesn't believe in magic. So we immediately see the importance of the bond between these two characters. But it'll also serve as an interesting foundation for the fact that they're both going to enter a very magical situation together uh, for the rest of the film. Uh, and they're going to have to spend some time in the woods, navigating the woods, navigating survival skills, and aligning with their bear-like energy before they can return to court and marry the bear-like energy to the feminine energy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, other things that I pick out from just symbols of myth and folklore is the how much Merida is like the Greek goddess Artemis. Absolutely, Yeah. Artemis associated with nighttime, associated with the moon. Archery. Associated with archery and is also associated with maidenhood. Artemis um, refuses to marry in the mythic sense, refuses to, to be married, refuses the advances of all men, and would rather be at night hunting with her bow than she would be at day in court next to Zeus, being a dutiful daughter with a, you know, a... Uh, a god of a husband. Yeah, I think that's a really good call out um, to align her with Artemis, the huntress, the archer, and the maiden, um, and that she gets to retain a lot of those qualities as she moves forward into the next phase of her life, and her mother gets to uh, access some of those qualities that maybe she has lost because they have both agreed by the end of this that they're going to be in charge of their own destinies together. Uh, I don't think there's anything quite so moving as that moment between them uh, in the stone circle uh, as the sun is coming up and Merida says, Mom, you've changed. And with tears in her eyes, Eleanor says, Darling, we both have. Uh, and for me, that's, uh, that's the core of what makes this movie feminist. That's the core of what makes this movie effective uh, and, and moving and transformative is that both of these women get to change uh, but they also both get to retain so much of themselves and they find a way to communicate where once there was a barrier because there is space for both of them to be who they are, to express their energies uh, in, in the same space, uh, but to also allow each other to continue to grow. I love it. What else you got? You have to be brave to change your fate. You have to be brave to break tradition. You have to be brave to fight the patriarchy. I think you have to be brave to be a woman, to be a mother, to be a daughter, to be a father, to be a son, to be in a relationship, to be in a family, to be in a community. Uh, I think this movie is encouraging all of us to take our time and to give others their time. Uh, to look into the eyes of the people that we love, to really listen to them and really give them what they need in order to flourish. And to do that through a, a fairy tale, through a medieval setting, through uh, men in kilts throwing sheep at each other, <laughs> and to do that with humor and heart and grace is kind of something only Pixar can do. Um, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for it, especially at this moment in my life where I'm preparing for the journey of motherhood, um, because it makes me think about my own mother. It makes me think about how much I owe to her 
how much I put her through when I was Merida's age, and uh, how grateful I am to have had the time to become who I am um, and to have had the space to make my own choices uh, and for everything that my mother gave me. Um, Getting a little emotional here at the end, but I think Pixar does that to all of us. Any final thoughts, Derek? Until next time, be kind. Be kind. Until talking about in prepping, <laughs> <laughs>